Michael Osterlink here. I'm with Heather Herbert. She is Director of New Models of Policy Change, Political Reform Project at the New America Foundation. How you doing, Heather? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me do this. Uh, this is great. Uh, you know, you and I have worked together on and off for many years on a wide variety of projects. Uh, and I do want to ask you more about your past before we get into kind of your transparency and explorations more recently at the New America Foundation. Um, but just a few things on the on your new project. When you talk about new models of policy change, I use the word transpartisan, but I think you're looking much more broadly than the than that specific term. Can you just speak quickly about what your title inf informs us about your work, and then jump into a little bit about who you are and what brought you to this work? Sure. So the project started because of the insight that. Um, foundations and a lot of mainline advocacy groups and basically the kind of mainstream of American political thought has a very set idea about how policies change and how Americans influence the policy process. And that model basically was that the great and the good in the center of both parties were informed by ideas that came from other people, and frankly this dates back to when it was all the same bunch of white guys who went to the same colleges together and moved in and out of law firms, investment banks, and high-level government positions, and that all you had to do was get an idea into the hands of one of those guys, and sort of magically through osmosis or lunch at the club, the right policy, and I'm using air quotes, would win out. Now, you know, the world doesn't work, if the world ever really did work that way, it doesn't work that way anymore um, for lots of different reasons, polarization, democratization of the policy process, media, greater transparency in what's going on. So there's just all kinds of reasons that that model doesn't work, but um, as you know, the model of how foundations and donors give money to advocates to do work and how if you come into this field you're encouraged to think about the role of ideas and the role of politics is, is setting us up to fail and is setting up this very artificial divide which says you have politics on one side and ideas on the other. And, you know, so, so that's what, what new models of policy change means is let's not get stuck in that old way of doing things. And, you know, so then sort of personally for me, having spent, you know, 20 years working mostly in foreign and national security policy in the space where first when I got into the space it was always oh you know if only the politicians would listen to the experts and then it turned into oh if only everything wasn't so polarized but when you actually look at the sort of realities of what people think the divisions that we look at right now cut broadly across experts non-experts Democrats Republicans so we're caught in all these false dichotomies, and the, again, the strategies we're using just aren't working. So as somebody who just temperamentally, you know, if I'm going to make a mistake, I like to make a new mistake. If I'm going to fail at something, I like to fail in a new and interesting way. So when the opportunity came along to, to get out of day-to-day -day advocacy on foreign and national security policy and step back a little bit and look at are there ways that we could work better or differently both within the system and are there other ways we could change the system? You know, that's, I mean, that was an opportunity to shift gears that most of us don't necessarily get mid-career. So that's how I wound up doing this. It's fantastic. What allows New America to even create a project like this? Um, well, a couple things. One is that the Hewlett Foundation is very worried about what's happening to American politics and what's happening to the relationship of the government and the governed. 
and they saw this idea as a subset of that, which was pretty creative for them, because usually when people think about political reform, they think constitutional amendments, voting, campaign finance reform, lots of things that are really interesting and smart people spend a lot of time thinking about, but not so much what can we actually do with what we've got now. What can we just do with people of goodwill? And that's where New America comes in. It is, it's a relatively new think tank. And its DNA always was, let's just pull up interesting ideas that don't fit other places. You know, an idea that maybe isn't a straight down the line Democratic or Republican idea, an idea that's not maybe espoused by the biggest PhDs in the field, that's maybe a little more populist, or, you know, that's more technology-based than the traditional think tanks were. So, so New America has always been a place where people were thinking a little bit differently, even in the sort of traditional D.C. think tank culture. And so the political reform program, basically what we, what we think of ourselves doing is we poke holes in everybody's ideas, that we don't say there's one magic bullet for any of this. And so I, I fit right in there. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, no, it's, New America sounds great. I've actually done work with them on uh, technology and surveillance issues, and it's uh, great to hear the way you describe the work that they do do, kind of outside the box. And uh, you are a perfect fit for that project that you're working on. Um, tell me, so so far, what have you done in terms of looking at new models? Well, what's actually been really fun about it is we've commissioned case studies that look at both successful and failed mm -hmm. efforts to bring strange bedfellows or what you and I call transpartisan partnerships together. And I mean one of the things I love about it is we don't we don't spend nearly enough time on failure in our field, right? We don't like to talk about it. We're uncomfortable with it. You're not supposed to tell the donors. You don't want to let the media see it. You know, just move on as quickly as possible. Which means we don't learn. Right. Right? right I mean right. as a as a culture we don't learn. So what I've loved about this project is that we can look both at things that have worked really well and are still working, like criminal justice reform, right. which, you know, there's just this amazing story of how that starts in Texas right and how front. it brings together the strands of conservatives working within their own movement and sort of that you really have to look at the intellectual and cultural richness within the conservative movement, the traditional progressive advocacy groups who looked around and said, you know, the numbers are not in our favor, we're going to keep losing, we don't like losing, we have to do something different, and some funders who were willing to take a chance on, you know, frankly, groups that were much more political than their traditional model told them would be right. So, so that one, you know, continuing to grow and be successful. Then we looked at the Pentagon Budget Campaign, which you and I worked on together, which frankly had a very successful period, and I would now argue, and I don't know, we haven't talked about this before we were recording it. <laughs> so. Yeah. We've just, I mean, the budget deal that was recently passed, I think, marks a turn for the worse for the fortunes of transpartisan Pentagon budget control, um, which, you know, we can talk about why. There's a bunch of really interesting reasons, but I think that issue is we may have seen its high point, at least for now. We're bringing out um, this Friday, actually, and listeners who are interested should check us out on the New America website. Um, a case looking at um, evangelicals on climate change. Okay. And this is, you, you asked sort of what lessons we're, we're drawing so far. Mm -hmm. And this is a case where you had folks within the evangelical movement saying, we want to build a new generation of evangelical leaders and young evangelicals to whom 
who understand responding to climate change as part of what it means to be an evangelical Christian. Like stewardship of the earth. Stewardship God's, of the God's earth. earth. They called it climate care. Oh. Um, and they had, and they started, you know, they didn't start from politics, they didn't start from policy, they didn't start from cap and trade, they didn't start from, you know, go hug a tree. They started from, from theology, you know, very much not from a place that a, a secular environmentalist would start from, but very much sort of what, is, what does God say, what does the Bible say about caring for the earth? And they built from that. And they had a plan that was a 10 or 20 year plan. Um, and then they met some environmental funders who said, hey, great, you know, we need, we need this to be a bipartisan, nonpartisan effort. We need to recruit some evangelicals, so we'll fund you guys. And the evangelical funder said, that's great. We'll keep working, doing what we know within our community. And then came a point where the funders and the traditional environmental NGOs were pushing for a cap-and-trade bill in 2009-2010, went back to the evangelical groups and said, okay, now it's time for you to deliver. And the evangelical groups knew they weren't ready, knew that within their own community, the base was not ready to hear this message in a politicized way. Mm -hmm. um, but the funders said, no, no, we want this now. So they went ahead and put out a statement of principles by evangelical leaders, got a lot of pushback from mm -hmm. allies in the conservative movement, and most of the leaders actually walked away from the statement. Wow. You know, and so it was it was a big failure at the time. And so, you know, the things we can learn from that about needing to respect the culture of groups you're working with, needing to make sure that groups get in at the beginning and help design a strategy rather than be asked to implement a right, strategy right, right. that might not accord with their own culture. Um, you know, understanding, like not asking groups to deliver things that they can't, and also, you know, knowing your own limitations, which we all know is really hard when you have to fundraise. So, um, two of the three I, I, I've been involved in, um, the Pentagon Budget Campaign with you, we did a retreat, professionally facilitated, three days, beautiful location down south. Um, that helped launch the campaign. Um, I was a co-facilitator for criminal justice a day long conversation which led to a, a, a launch of the campaign. Those seem to be two models that I'm aware of in yep. launching transpartisan activities, either a professionally facilitated retreat or a day long getting all the groups together, already have some general agreement and then coming up with the campaign and moving forward. Um, can you speak to either those two models and others that you've come across, the strengths, the weaknesses, the successes, the failures? Well, I'll just note that it's interesting to contrast those models with as far as I'm aware, there was not anything like that done in the climate case, okay. that the evangelical leaders and the environmental leaders were never really integrated with each other, which may explain why they didn't understand each other. And, you know, another a case that we'll have coming out in December or January actually looks at anti-common core activism, where you have, um, you have very progressive left, sort of the left wing of teachers unions, and conservative Tea Party activists. And there, actually, what, what I think we found, although, shh, don't tell anybody because the survey's not final, <laughs> but um, is that while there was some initial cooperation there, the groups could hardly agree to anything before they went back to fighting mm -hmm. on the issues they disagreed on. And so there was really, again, as far as the last, the last draft of it I read, there was no effort to do any trust building or getting to know each other and so ultimately 
you know, I mean, you have the case of the interesting case there is Indiana, where far left and far right groups teamed up to force the state out of Common Core, but then the state came back the next month and adopted standards that aren't called Common Core, but are about 85% the same. So, you know, you can claim that as victory or failure, depending on how you think about it. But um, another model, so there's the kind of formal facilitated retreat model. There's also the kind of round table model, okay. which, um, you know, you, you practice in some ways through your work bringing people um, from ideologically diverse places into the Wednesday group. Um, uh, when I invite my when you invite lefty friends. When you in. invite your lefty friends. When I get permission to do so. Um, but there's also, <laughs> so for example, a guy named Stuart Butler, huh? Brookings, who um, listeners may be surprised to find that Stuart sits at Brookings, and before that he sat at Heritage for 25 years, right, which right. is a pretty unusual profile here in, in D.C., which tells you that Stuart's a pretty unusual guy, but that they'll be, you know, on some issues, he has convened, you know, just a regular discussion group that crosses ideological lines to talk about, you know, what are we doing about poverty? Nice, what are we yeah. doing about welfare reform? Um, what are we doing about Social Security? He's also an advisor to Convergence, yes. too, which is another great model in a similar fashion of bringing people together to work on similar type of issues. Well, Convergence is interesting, too, because it's a new, you know, Stuart's been doing that for a long time, the kind of retreat model, decently well-established, and Convergence is interesting because it's new. Mm -hmm. I wish I were interviewing you so I could ask you what you think <laughs> of it. Um, you know, it's actually another model that I've just started hearing more about, which is more a sort of local community version of this, is um, Joan Blade's Living Room Conversations. Mm -hmm. um, Full disclosure, I was a board member and now I'm an advisor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But when I, you know, Joan's story about, and this, this is, by the way, a methodology where you get people in a community together, and unlike the models that Michael and I were talking about up to now, which presumes that everyone's coming because there's some specific thing they want to work on and they think they have common ground, um, Jones, the, the living room conversations model, is that people are coming mostly because they want to talk to someone who's different, and you don't necessarily assume at the beginning that you know you're going to end up working on something or what that something is, which, which is a model that's really hard for policy wonks and funders and all of us, you know, sort of type A result-oriented people. <laughs> uh -huh. But um, we, need, we need to consider that model more, frankly, and we, you know, I, I'm about as type A as you get, but we all need to incorporate a little more type B. It's really funny because uh, I did all my graduate work out in California, I spent a lot of time out in California, and kumbaya California, if everyone just gets together and talks and hugs, they don't have to hug, but you know, it's kind of the California thing then everything's going to be okay versus, like, we don't do that in D.C. We just move forward with a very type A personality. Yeah. But, you know, my experience suggests and listening to you talk, it really needs to be an integration of the two. I mean, the relationships are really important before you drive a policy forward or you have the fragmentation and the failures that you mentioned earlier. Relationship over task. Relationship <clears throat> over task, which is so hard. It's so hard for type A personalities. Uh -huh. And it's also, frankly, so hard for introverts, which some of mm. us are. That, you know, some of us picked our fields because we thought we would be dealing more with ideas or numbers and less with people and politics. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> and then when you come around and say, oh, actually, to get anywhere with your idea, it's all about relationships, you can, you can get a pretty strenuous amount of rejection for that um, because, you know, people do try to sort themselves into fields that, that, that emphasize their strengths. Right, right. Uh, but, I mean, one of, the cruel, <laughs> one of the cruel facts of life, and, I mean, there, there's some really neat 
psychology way of saying this that I'm forgetting right now, but it's basically, you know, you can't get away from your weaknesses. Mm -hmm. No, that's very true. Um, you were nice enough, I think almost two years ago, to invite me to address Hewlett and about 24 other foundations, 25, with a larger group of people, um, laying out the transpartisan. The afternoon was kind of laying out some transpartisan activities that are going on and the theory behind them. And I think the morning was more academics. And I'm curious on the response that you've heard since then to the funders, because I remember a conversation that you and I had that the funders, to that date at least, were starting to recognize that they were funding bifurcation of the, bifurcation, which leads to the polarization and the locking in of the systems. Um, that there's no way to break through that unless they start doing something differently. And I think that was the intention of the seminar you put together for them, is to teach them to think differently. Did they take that lesson? Are things changing the way they fund things? Are they thinking outside the box? Are they not locking the system into place as it has been for the last 20 years? Well, not just because they fund me, but Hewlett itself <laughs> is much better at thinking about this kind of thing mm -hmm. than, frankly, many other funders that I have encountered. And so they, but having said that, at the same time, the foundation world moves quite slowly. Okay. So I would say it's an interesting and fertile time in that you have a lot of different funders thinking a lot of thoughts and asking themselves a lot of questions that isn't necessarily translating into a flowering of different style funding. Yeah, okay. Um, in the last, you know, in the year plus I've been doing this project, I have addressed or worked with several different funder affinity groups in, in different fields. And, you know, one of the things I've been really struck by, and this may seem like a paradox, but to do transpartisan policy work successfully, you have to be quite politically astute, right? So you have to, on the one hand, be able to work with people who are really different, mm -hmm. but you also have to be able to understand their political dynamics and your own political dynamics and how they operate. So, you know, what can you, what can you ask a Republican to swallow right now? What can you ask a Democrat to swallow right now? If you bring forward a particular framing of an issue, who is that empowering or weakening mm -hmm. on either side, and is this going to be a good time or bad time for it? And what, frankly, what we found that we didn't anticipate at all when we, you know, held that conference and did the intellectual work that all of us did around it is just how much, just how much resistance we'd find in the funder and advocacy community to thinking politically like that. Um, and I go back to, you know, I go back to my point that I think. Some of us are a lot more comfortable with ideas than with politics. Right, right. Yeah, so I want to kind of unpack something you said. Um, the, the, the funder or the, the, the advocacy group needs to both understand the other side, and I'd make that plural because there's multiple different sides, Right. Um, which is a challenge in and of itself because, you know, we tend to tribalize and then have characterological assessments of other people as opposed to kind of a deep dive and trying to understand their worldviews and stuff. So that is in and of itself a challenge, which I'd like to ask you about. But also, it seemed to me that you're also suggesting a self-reflection so, so they can also understand where they are themselves coming from, um, which is seemingly even more difficult. Because <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of people tend to, and I, I call this the con conditioned political mind, is they think their worldview is it, so they're, they're, there's not really a need for reflection on it. It's the, it's the given, and that the others are the wrong ones and need to be corrected. Yeah. So can you talk about what you've discovered in terms of self-reflection for the funders and the advocacy groups and the need to understand other perspectives from the, the other sides? Uh, yeah. Well, 
paradoxically, people who are best at the transpartisan work actually have really strong senses of personal belief. They're not mushy middle people who sort of don't believe anything or aren't sure what they think. Um, and Michael is grinning because <laughs> I'm on to him on this. Um, and so, you know, ideologues actually make the best transpartisans. But what they bring to that is an, a level of confidence about their own beliefs and an intense level of curiosity about other people's beliefs. Mm -hmm. So that, you ha that they have the ability to say, well, Michael, I think your beliefs on vaccination are crazy, but I'm really interested in how you got them and what your belief structure looks like and how that's what that says about you. And I'm open to the idea that while you're telling me that, I'll probably hear some things that make sense to me. So it's this combination of, of empathy, having interest in empathy, but not in a way that, that like my disagreeing with you doesn't affect my sense of self. And I think a terribly large number of people go into the policy and politics world because we've got some internal weakness that we're trying to solve or buffer or strengthen. I mean, look, why do people do anything in the world, right? Mm -hmm. But it turns out that if you have a weakness around your own core beliefs, you're going to do a really crummy job of listening openly to other people's core mm -hmm. beliefs. So, you know, there is, and this runs us up against, you know, a challenge that we have in the policy advocacy sphere where we tend to think that you know, our friends who make really strident statements of belief or believe kind of more extreme things or don't sit comfortably in the center, you know, like wouldn't be presentable at the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, you know, maybe those people don't belong in the room. But yet it actually turns out that some of, not all of, there are, there are confident and unconfident people at every ideological niche, as far as I can see. But Sometimes it's the people who have enough confidence to, to speak their beliefs really strongly. It's who also have the confidence to listen. That, that's actually, from a psychological point of view as a therapist, right on. So I, I, I completely agree that there is something about confidence and the ability to listen. Because you find that also in couples. You know, when you do, when I, as a therapist, when I would do couples counseling, the less confident any one of the two partners might be, the less able they are to listen and the more defended they are in their positions. So. And then the more messed up the system is. Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite examples um, is um, a guy who is a, a South Asian immigrant, grew up in very difficult family circumstances, went to a very elite law school, practiced law for a couple of years, was very radicalized by this experience, you know, kind of routinely goes out and gets arrested, is, you know, kind of a, you know, like DJs at Burning Man, is, is kind of a complete, um, your complete stereotype of a left-wing activist, and he works with the Colorado Springs City Council to get them to um, adopt common positions on, on surveillance. Nice, nice. <laughs> and, and he talks very, he says, you know, don't call this transpartisan. He says, this is just how you have to be in a multicultural society. That if you think of it as organizing, organizing across cultures requires sort of rootedness in your own beliefs mm -hmm. and openness mm -hmm. to others. No, I like that. You know, um, one of the things I suggest to people is that the term transpartisan does not just apply to politics. Yeah. So we tribalize everywhere, religion and you know, other areas we tribalize as well. But you know, we, we don't have to use that term. I just happen to like it. 
but I, I like what he has to say. I think that he's right on. Because um, we do live in a multicultural world, and uh, even multicultural within political ideologies or health ideologies or educational ideologies. And, um, you, you talked about the mushy middle, and that most transpartisans are pretty, you know, on, perhaps on the extreme uh, with a strong core of beliefs, but they're open to, because they're confident, they're open to a conversation. Um, I'd like to make a distinction and ask you to speak to it. Because some people I talk to, oh, the extremes, you know, they're extremes, we can't, you know, blah, 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 and they kind of, they're all scared about these extreme views. And I think what they're afraid of is, extre is extreme personalities who are expressing certain views. Because, mm. you know, if you have an extreme personality, anything you say could be just taken, even if you're saying things really rationally make sense, because the way you express it is not heard well. And I'd make a distinction between that and kind of extreme outside of me, I'll put it in quotes, outside the mainstream thinking. Could you speak to those differences and, and the extremes as you were thinking about them in terms of the mushy middle? Yeah, that's a great it's a great point. That there's a kind of there's two different ways of being an outsider, I think is how I would put it. Okay. Um, you know, there's an outsider in terms of do you behave the way that you're wherever you've landed, you know, sort of in DC culture or California culture expects you to behave, uh. right? And then there's, do your positions, what's the relationship of your views to what your culture has decided the orthodoxy is? Um, and it's interesting how often the two go together and how often the sense, and I mean this, you would know more about the psychology of this than me, but it's been my observation over years of doing policy work that the more somebody feels like they're an outsider, they will act in outsidery ways. Mm -hmm. And so the, the problem kind of becomes mutually self-reinforcing. Yeah, right, right. Um, and conversely, um, and this is a huge problem that Washington has, the more you think you might be close enough to being accepted into the orthodoxy, the more self-policing and policing of others about orthodoxy you'll be. So there are whole spheres, wow. you know, where it's it's harder to have... And, and actually, you know, this is an observation that um, Jason Grumet, who runs the Bipartisan Policy Center, which in some ways is as mushy middle as you can get, but Jason said to me, he said, no, absolutely, he said, you know, look, he said, most great bipartisan ideas don't come from the center, they come from the outsides. Um, and there's a, you know, the, 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 great, the great challenge in operating within any system, right, is being able to have enough inroads into the system while still retaining cognitive freedom to not be completely trapped within the what isness of the system. I think that's, I'm just visualizing that it's a perfect description, not only of uh, policy and politics, but uh, all systems, in business and in, in, in families. I mean, there's an orthodoxy, and you kind of get locked in that system, and it's self-perpetuating. So how do you go about both participating in the system, but not getting you know, uh, conditioned so much that you feel restrained, and you can't bring in new ideas, new, way, new behaviors, new ways of being, new ways of thinking? Well... You know, I'll, I'll think of, I think I'll start with somebody like Stuart Butler. And Stuart um, is the most mild-mannered guy with a very slight, charming accent of the kind that Americans just love. And basically any place that Stuart goes, he's a very sort of calming and constructive presence. So in terms of personality traits, 
he does not present in any way as an, as an outsider. So, you know, he could be sitting in a room full of mainstream liberals at Brookings or in a room full of, you know, firebrand conservatives at Heritage or anything in between. And culturally, he's going to present as, as this very reassuring, familiar type. And so that's kind of one way, that's one technique that some people... Now, for some other people, that feels ragingly inauthentic and they can't do it. But, you know, if you can do it, it's a helpful technique. Another one is, is personal relationships. So, for example, people who... Um, and in, you and I both practice this one, I would say. Um, that we both have networks that are that range from the very establishment to the quite outsider, and I mean I don't know how you would describe I describe myself as equally uncomfortable everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll answer that, but I don't want to interrupt you. <laughs> so, so you know, another technique is having relationships throughout the system in such a way that everybody in the system sees you as a useful part of the system. And then you have the liberty to move between parts of the system. Um, so those are a couple of strategies that I that I see people. I mean, the other the other actually getting back to the self, your self knowledge question is just to be purely embedded in your own place, but know what your own place has to offer others in the system, so that you can come and say, look, I am nothing but a liberal Hispanic activist in Texas, and I am never going to be anything else. And I, that gives me a certain amount of credibility, which is useful to you, Mr. Conservative Politician. It gives me inroads to a certain community that you might want to reach, Mr. Conservative Politician. And so on the basis of that, without me ever trying to be anything else, without mm -hmm. me trying to be anywhere near your political center, maybe we can talk. Mm -hmm. So that kind of the pure self-knowledge and, and a, a very unvarnished understanding of the <coughs> system and a willingness to kind of use the system is another... How about keeping um, the mind open? Like, how do you not get yourself locked into a particular worldview? Oh, I think I'm terribly locked into a worldview. Honestly, I mean, I think I am. I am. <clears throat> I mean, on the one hand, I think I'm terribly locked into a worldview. On the other hand, I, I'm like we were saying earlier. I'm curious, okay. um, and I'm fascinated by people. You know, what makes them tick? What makes that person believe that? Um, you know, an interesting, the other night, there, you know, the part of the events at uh, the University of Missouri, um, and after the, the um, university had resigned, the student groups held a rally and kept media out of the rally. <laughs> and a lot of my friends who were reporters were irate about this. And they, you know, how can people do this? And how can progressive activists not understand that the media should be there? And kids these days, they're so stupid. And all this kind of, you know, oh, kids these days don't understand. These people were wrong. And I said, you know, I don't get it either. But these people just pulled off something really amazing. And so that compels me to stop and say, well, what if they understand about their circumstances that I don't? Right, because they just accomplished something that if you'd asked me, you know, hey, can we get the head of the University of Missouri education system fired in one semester? No, of course you can't do that. So, you know, I guess that's the way I succeed in keeping my mind open, or even having some humility about whether my mind actually is very open. <laughs> You know, some things my mind is not open about at all. Let's just let's just be honest about that. Uh, you're a human being, <laughs> as far as I know. <laughs> That's kind of normal. Um, so you've done uh, 
three re two releases so far. Yep. Third um, one coming Friday. Pentagon budget. The second one was criminal. Well, first one first was, was criminal, criminal justice. justice. Second Pentagon budget. Um, climate change comes this Friday. This Friday, November. We, we'll have. I hope in December, but possibly not till January. The Common Core. Okay. And then there's one more that we're still looking at, which is basically why has policing reform not enjoyed the same kind of transpartisan successes that criminal justice reform has? Oh, interesting. Which um, you know brings up, which brings up, you know, actually it brings up the, in a funny way that touches on the questions of when can your mind afford to be open and when can your mind not afford to be open, and. <clears throat> I'm curious about that because I know the Pentagon was a non-issue to be addressed by the conservatives for a long time. It changed, obviously, and I'm wondering if uh, same thing with police reform. If eventually, if not soon, the conservative side of the political spectrum will have to open their minds and recognize that there is a problem to be addressed. And it doesn't mean you're against the Pentagon, but you're against the military because you want to reform it and save money, or you're against the police because you want reforms. It'll be interesting to see how that one plays out. Well, I'll, I'll mention something um, a little <coughs> less optimistic, which is actually you can see, and I went back and looked at the polling on this, um, that there was a, a period where conservatives were very open to the idea of reforming the Pentagon and spending money on defense, saving money on defense, I mean, and that um, started to close about a year and a half ago. And actually the numbers have really flipped. Um, and I worry and actually a lot of people are worried both about criminal justice and policing, that um, if there gets to be a perception that crime is on the rise and that people are less safe, that then actually we won't ever have that moment on policing. That, right. And you know what you see is you have a lot of smart, thoughtful police chiefs, quite apart from ideology, saying, hey, wait, you know, if these methods are not delivering us cooperation and calm in the communities we police, then they're not working, we need to do something else. And the challenge I'm afraid of is, and this is very parallel to what happened with the Pentagon, by the way, where insiders are saying, no, we have to have change, we know we can't go on the way we are, you know, we know that this is an unsustainable model, but the political realm is what gets frozen. Um, and I do, I do, I fear that we're back to that with the Pentagon, and I worry about it with police. With the Pentagon, I noticed a, a sea change once uh, the videos of ISIS cutting people's heads off yep. and the Russian invasion of Crimea, yep. um, which is interesting because if you actually look at it objectively and factually, it doesn't require that much money to deal with either. So you really don't need to increase Pentagon spending as much as these guys claim. But you can, you know, the it's the same thing I remember with the Patriot Act. I think it was 2006 when the reform, when the sun, sunsets came due, 2005, 2006, somewhere around there. Um, when was the 7-7 the seven, seven bombing? Uh, which year was that? The bombing in um, in London. In London. Um, oh gosh. Was that two thousand six. That sounds right. Okay. Well, we had great momentum politically, grassroots, grass tops on Pentagon on on patriotic reform, and the bombings occurred. Mm. And, and that was not even here in the states. It's yep. just in London. I'm not just, but right. in, in London. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the and the the culture just shifted. Yeah. And I think the same thing happened with ISIS and and uh, Russian invasion Crimea. And, and I wouldn't be surprised, as you say. That if you know if there's a rise, perceptual rise in crime, doesn't actually have to be a real rise in crime. Um, that that will change too with criminal justice reform and police reform. Yeah, I mean, I should say, well, two things. One is the real, the terrible thing about the crime issue is, you know, we may <coughs> well be in a situation where there is a rise in crime in inner cities and the poorest environments, and there is not a rise in crime afflicting mostly middle class 
whiter communities. And so we may be in this, you know, sort of, we're creating such a stratified society that it may, I mean, you have to ask yourself whether one of the reasons we've been able to do what we have on criminal justice is that white, upper middle class, more politically engaged people are experiencing a lot less crime than we used to, and frankly, a lot less crime than poor folks of color are experiencing. So, so that I really worry about too, that there's you know, this sort of two-speed two speed America. Um, to say something more optimistic though, on, a, on a slightly <laughs> different note, I am actually on Pentagon, I do think one of the things that's gonna be a, a successful legacy of the transpartisan work is that a whole bunch of the kind of mainstream inside the orthodoxy players now feel safer talking about the need for reforms. Mm -hmm. So ironically, we may end up in a scenario where both the kinds of substantive reforms that you and I hope to see happen, and at the same time, there's a kind of thoughtless increase in spending that isn't what you and I hoped to see. Well, it's good to end on some optimism because I hope Darcy listens to this and, and can be optimistic about our work together. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I do see openings that we hope can re remain opening, and uh, on, on, at least on the center right, the Freedom Caucus offers me some optimism because I recall just speaking to that, you know, maybe six, seven, eight years ago, is Ron Paul and like three or four other guys on the on the right. There's always some good progressives on these kind of issues. But now you have you know more and more each time, so that gives me hope for the future. Yeah, and you guys have done <clears throat> on your side a great job of educating about just how wasteful some of the wasteful spending yeah. is. Which you know, as much as my buddies on the left have been trying to educate people for years, the lesson of transpartisanship is you can have a great idea, but it has to come through a trusted messenger. Right. So, and once you've educated people about that, you know those those that knowledge is still there if it can be activated again in the future. From your lips to God's ears. <laughs> we make it so. Uh, where can folks find more about the series, the, the Strange Bedfellow series? Great. So come to newamerica.org and click on political reform. Awesome. Thanks for asking me that. Thanks, Heather.